Good morning, Anthem. Uh, sorry, I hate, I hate breaking up the, the fellowship. I always feel so rude. Uh, but welcome. Uh, thank you for being with us. I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. Welcome to being part of the Thanksgiving remnant at Anthem this morning. <laughs> I think I was joking earlier. I've heard so many people that are driving this morning. I was like, I think half the church in America is probably on the highways right now. Um, but, um, but it's a great time of year to see family and travel. And so hopefully you had a restful Thanksgiving. Uh, this morning, uh, I just want to go into a few things before we go into the sermon. And a lot of those have to do with we're, we're beginning Advent this morning, which in a minute I'll explain that. But uh, one of the things, uh, I'm not sure, I don't think they're on your seat this morning, but over here, if, if you're wondering when are kind of the service times and whatnot as we get into Christmas break and whatnot, um, with the holidays, obviously, you, we don't kind of go back and forth during Thanksgiving, but obviously during the holidays, there was a lot of travel, so sometimes we go down to one service versus two, um, and all those, the dates and the specific Sundays when we do that in service times are on the back of one of these small cards, and if you didn't get one last week, we had them on all the seats, they're over there underneath the lights, and so you can just stop by there and grab one of these. It's a way to invite others. Uh, it can be like an invite card, or it's just something you stick on your fridge, keep in your car, whatnot, so that you have those times accessible and you can remind yourself. So grab one of those. And then also uh, we've put together uh, just something that goes along with the sermon series. Um, and this has in it um, just some things that you can do at home, some readings and whatnot. Um, and the instructions are all in here. Um, but specifically what this walks you through is how to do an Advent candle lighting as part of your family worship. And so some of you might be asking, well, what is an Advent candle lighting? Well, you are going to see it happen right now before your very eyes. Um, and so because it's the very first week of Advent each week, one of the ways uh, that Advent is celebrated is by lighting of a candle. Advent, you might be asking, what is Advent? Advent is just a Latin word for, that means the, uh, a, means coming. It means that, and, and it's looking at the advent of Christ and his coming into the world, and then also his second coming, awaiting his second coming into the world. And so advent is just the arrival of Jesus into the world. And what we do as a church, and historically the church has done this, is in the four weeks leading up to Christmas, the church prepares its hearts for the reality of Christmas morning, for the significance of what happens on Christmas. And, and part of why we do this is because here's the thing, Make no mistake about it, when we have days like Christmas and Easter and these days throughout the year, we're meant to remember the profound truths of what we have in Jesus and in the gospel. And, and what the, these kind of the times leading up to then is when we arrive at that day, either our heart will be prepared to really grasp the significance of what happened in, in uh, the work that God has done in Christ, or what will happen is we won't be prepared for it. And so what we want to do is just be sincere in our in set, uh, cultivating our hearts and getting ready for Christmas morning. And so that's what Advent is. And so one of the ways, and we'll talk about what the theme is in a minute and whatnot, one of the ways uh, that we do this, because Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And he entered into the darkness so he could vanquish the darkness and death would be no more. And so historically what the church has done is lit a candle each week uh, just to capture the fact that Jesus is the light of the world and he's entered into the darkness. And so uh, this week, uh, or this morning, I'm going to have the Wright family will come up and they'll lead us in the first, uh, the candle lighting. Um, and as we light this first candle, we do so to remind us that the light of Christ has brought the hope, the hope of salvation into a world overwhelmed by sin and darkness, that we no longer have to despair, but we have a sure hope, a true hope that we can anchor our souls in. And so the first light points to that hope that we have in Christ. And this is the prophecy from Isaiah, an Old Testament prophet. This is also uh, our text for this morning's sermon. It comes from Isaiah 2. So the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, uh, Lord, that with zeal you do this. With zeal you vanquish the darkness. With zeal you set us free in Christ. With zeal the light is dawning. 
Christ, you have entered the world and you have defeated death. And so with zeal, you've given us hope. And so, Lord, would we take hold of that hope this morning, be reminded of it. And Lord, would we live and live the hope that we have in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the midst of chaos, I want to begin with a question this morning. In the midst of chaos, how do we find hope? In the midst of chaos, how do we find hope? If we're honest, many of us are looking at the world around us, and we, when we do so, we, we struggle with despair. If we're honest. And, and, and I don't have to go into all, recount all the things that it might be and, and list all the things. I would just say, uh, I would submit to you if you go and take a glance on your newsfeed as Exhibit A, right? Prove my point. Uh, there's a lot of despair right now. And so, and, and, and not, just, not just hope, but also peace. Joy, love. Well, how do we find these? In, in, in other words, are these just things that are just wishful thinking? Are they, they actually something that we can have? Because it's easy to think like, okay, these are things that we kind of hold to and we aspire to, but they're not really anything that's there. We just, we hope for them. We, we look for them. We long for them. And in fact, actually our lives are almost like driven on this quest for these things. But is it just wishful thinking? These are the themes that we're going to be going over this year in Advent, each week. You know, sometimes churches will go through, you know, like a gospel birth narrative. And when they go through those, they might like one week look at kind of like the, the shepherds and then, uh, and then another week, the, uh, I'm blanking, on the, the magi and the shepherds and the, uh, I'm blanking. I want to go like the barn animals at the manger, but that's not right. Um, but every week you kind of focus on a different character and you highlight them until you come to Jesus on, on Christmas. And, uh, but we're going to be looking at the themes of hope and then peace and joy and love. And we'll be in the book of Isaiah. You might say, what? In the book of Isaiah, don't you know that that's in the Old Testament? What does that have to do with Jesus' birth? I, I, don't, I don't understand. See, Isaiah is often called the fifth gospel, the fifth gospel, the book of Isaiah. And, and the reason why it's called this is because it operates kind of like a prequel to the gospels. And two of the gospels have a birth narrative in, uh, in Luke and in Matthew. And so uh, they recount the birth of Jesus and whatnot. But then in the books of John and Mark, they don't have a birth narrative. However, both of them begin their gospels by pointing to the prophecy of Isaiah. In other words, they say there's something that happened in Isaiah, and then actually Matthew and Luke, we'll read some of them later, they, they also build on exact quotes from Isaiah. In other words, what they're saying is you can't understand the reality of Jesus and who he is and what it means and the significance for him to enter the world unless you kind of have a grasp of what, hap- what Isaiah said in his prophecy. So that's where we're going to be in Isaiah. Now, the year was about 730 B.C. when Isaiah delivered his prophecy. That's more than 700 years before Jesus' birth or his advent. Isaiah 8.22 tells us it was a day of distress and darkness. Okay, so what happens is Isaiah, he kind of like just kind of adds up all these Hebrew terms to just try to say like, it's like this, it's like this. It's that. He's just trying to say, it's, it's really bad, guys. And he says, it's a day of distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, thick darkness. In fact, that could be translated from the Hebrew, death darkness. This permeates, this is the state of the world. The kingdom of Israel, the promised people with whom God made his presence known on earth was in the middle of collapsing. It was invaded and eventually conquered by one of the most barbaric regimes in world history, the Assyrians. They were led by a faithless king and the crumbling nation gave way to torture, to murder, to slavery the complete tearing apart of families and moving them into exile and other parts of the world. By every measure, all hope was lost. And it was about to get worse before it would get better. So Merry Christmas. Uh, we're going to be in Isaiah. <laughs> so you're like, what? wait, 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 I thought we were going into Christmas, right? And you're like, where, where are we going with this? Well, here's the thing. In the midst of this, in the midst of it being 
possibly the darkest it's ever been for the people of God. And in the time when it was as just, there seemed to be evil and chaos reigning all around the people of God. In the midst of it, what happens is God speaks. And he says, when it seems like there's absolutely no way there could be any hope, when it seems like the only thing you could possibly do is despair, in the midst of that, I'm going to prove how faithful and good I am and give you hope. And what God does is he begins to speak, and he speaks to this group that he calls the remnant. I called you the remnant this morning, right? Uh, he speaks to this group he calls the remnant, and he begins to give them these promises. And he says into this darkness, he gives this imagery of this light, and it starts at the beginning of Isaiah, and it carries all the way through Isaiah, this theme of this light in the midst of the darkness, this light slowly dawning, like on the horizon when all you can see is darkness, and then somewhere in the distance, just this light starts to break through. And that light rises as Isaiah moves forward in his prophecy throughout the book until the point when he comes to Isaiah 60 towards the end and he said that now the light has arisen on them and he points forward to Jesus as the light that comes in the darkness. We are in Isaiah this year because in the midst of chaos, in the midst of where it would be easy to despair, in the midst of it, we need to recapture the wonder, the reality of what Isaiah is saying. Do you see how the light is coming into the darkness? No matter what the darkness is, no matter what it might be for you, and it can be the big things you're concerned about with society, it can be the things in your individual life. Today, I'll be honest, I went to Ohio State, and yesterday, darkness prevailed. Uh, <laughs> Michigan came, and I'm still a little sore about it. It's like, how long, O Lord? Seems like until next year, and then it will vanquish your foes, right? <laughs> but whatever darkness it is, the Lord is saying hope. Hope is found in Christ. And so we'll be following the prophecy of Isaiah and see that after darkness, there is always light. Because of Jesus, after darkness, there is light. And today we'll see how the promise of Jesus gives us hope in the midst of the darkness. So first, we're going to look at the light that was lost. Second, the darkness we walk in. And then third, the sign of hope. Uh, let me just pray briefly again, and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, thank you for the light of the world. Lord, thank you for the prophecy of Isaiah that, Lord, in the midst of where there's darkness and there's chaos around us, Lord, and it's easy to despair, Lord, we know that there is an anchor and it's found in Christ. Lord, help us to find hope in him and live faithfully as people of hope. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the light that was lost. Uh, here's another question. So have you ever wondered what it is that we've lost? What, what is it that we've lost that we're all pining for? If you think about it, every, every generation of humanity throughout time Every individual has pined for, you could say, something better, has pined for a better economic state, has pined for more of a peaceful state, has pined for, just yearned for the, this, this ending of strife. Some of you are coming off of Thanksgivings. You're like, amen, right? And you're like, when will this thing get better? And here's the thing. What are we like yearning for? What is it that's there? What makes us think that in any way there's something better that we should be reaching out for? How do we know that this isn't actually the best that it can possibly get. What is it that we're yearning for? I think in the beginning of Isaiah, he gives a hint at what that is. Because what's happening in Israel in the midst of all of this chaos is actually God is saying, I have something for you. I have something for you. And it's what you've been looking for, and it's what you're, you're fighting over, and it's what you're, you're just constantly trying to grasp at. And he says this in Isaiah 3, he says, for Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen. That's the, the two, the northern and, or the, the southern kingdom. And he says, because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. So you see what he, what he assumes there is he says, there is a glorious presence you are made for. 
There's a glorious presence that every human being in the world is made for. And, and like a magnet in our soul, it's just pulling us towards this, this reality that we desire, that we want. We, we just long for it in our marriages. We long for it in our relationships. We long for it in our jobs. We long for it in our nation. We long for it all around us. And everyone right now is going crazy because we long for this. We are made in the image of God and we are made to walk in his presence, to know him. There's a Hebrew word for that state, that, that reality, that being in the presence of God. It's, it's the Hebrew word shalom. Some of you may have heard of it, um, but the Hebrew word shalom, and it's, it's really even more than just, we translate it often in, in English as peace, but it really means more than just peace. It, it, it really means like the, the way things are meant to be. It means this, this bliss, the, just this, that craving that we have in us. It's, it's that. And this is how one theologian, Cornelius Plantiga, he describes it like this, says the webbing together of God, humans and all creation and justice, fulfillment and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. That's key. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. I love that line that it's not merely just a ceasefire because so often the only way that I can think of this, this state that I desire is just, it's like this negative. It's like the only way I can understand is if it was just less of the fighting, if it was just everyone would stop firing bullets at one another, if everyone stopped warring with one another, then, I, then we would have it. But the thing is what he's saying is it's not what you long for. It's not merely just like a cessation of conflict. You long for something that is real. You long for something that is true. You long for something that is actually there. We are made for the shalom of God. What our hearts are longing for is a reality that's there. And we're made for it. And it's what was lost. It's what everyone, all of us, what our nation right now, what our world is actually pining for. And it's interesting because Isaiah actually gives, really throughout his prophecy, he's saying, I want you to know. I want you to know what that reality is, that God is actually at work to bring back that reality. That was what was lost in the garden when they walked with the Lord, when they had his presence, when they had shalom, that was lost. But what Isaiah is saying is my entire prophecy is about how that is going to be restored. How God is going to return that? How in the world will he do it? And what he does is he actually begins with this kind of famous scene in chapter 6 near the beginning of his prophecy where he says, I want to give you a glimpse of what is actually true about this shalom, this state, and what my, my desire to, what I want to restore, what I want to give to my people. And this is what he does. In Isaiah 6, some of you, if you've been around church at all, religious American culture, you've probably heard of this scene where he goes... Uh, it's about when, you know, they go in the temple and they say, holy, 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 right? And then it's like, who shall I send? And Isaiah's like, send me. And he's in the back and he's like, all right, I'll send you, right? And you're like at a missions conference and you heard that and you were crying. You're like, let's go, right? And, and so that's what most of us have experienced. Now, it's not less than that. I don't want to belittle. I sound like a belittle yet, but I don't want to make it less than that. But here's the thing. Do you know the context of how it begins? Because we often miss it because we read over it as modern readers. But in the ancient world, it would have just jumped right out at them. And this is what it begins with in Isaiah 6.1. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died. Why is that significant? It's significant because in the ancient world, when the king would die, it would lead to complete chaos, complete societal breakdown. The reason was because when a king died, usually what would happen is his descendants would start fighting over the throne. If there was no clear heir to the throne, then there was usually civil war that broke out. Once there was civil war that broke out, or just if um, the fact that other nations around them knew that when the king died, that meant that now there probably was warring, and they, they had the transition, things and whatnot, and they were vulnerable. 
And so not only do they have civil war internally, as they're trying to figure out who's the mightiest, who can lead us, and where's our nation going and whatnot, but also then surrounding nations started invading because they knew this was the time to conquer. This is when they're weak. This is when they're divided. And they would take the resources and they would take the people and enslave them. And so what it's saying here is that in the year that King Uzziah died, it's saying it is utter and complete chaos. And they're so filled with despair. And in many ways, there's so many parallels of what God was giving in this vision to Isaiah, to what we feel today. Where so many of us, we feel like what's going on around us and everything is chaos and it's, what, is this really all there is? And it's so easy to despair. And this is what the Lord says to Isaiah and he wants to say to us, is I want to give you a picture. I want to give you a very clear picture of what's most true. Because you see what's right in front of you. But then he says, Isaiah, come in. And he enters into the, the throne room of God. And God, he sees in this vision, God is high and exalted. He's on his throne. He's seated on the throne. He's ruling. It says his, his robe, the train of his robe fills the entire temple. In other words, it's a picture of God's power and authority in his presence filling the entire cosmos, the entire world. And what he's saying is, Isaiah, this if you could pull back the veil, this is what's most true about the universe. And it always will be. And what God is saying to us through this prophecy, through that picture, is he's saying you are meant for shalom. You are meant for me to be on the throne. You are meant for the full reality of that, to have a full sense of peace with my reign, to have a full sense of joy in my presence, to have a full sense of being embraced in my love. And I have come to give you hope that it is going to come in its fullness. And that is what Isaiah is going to unpack for us. There is something that was lost and God is at work in restoring it. How? How will he do it? Well, before we can see how God will restore, we first, we first have to see how we're prone to walk in darkness. Before we can see how God will bring his light, how God will bring restore this reality of his presence, what are the ways that we defy his presence? Where are the ways that darkness is at work in us, Isaiah says? Because I'm a big fan of the statement, if you don't actually know the problem, you won't have a good solution, right? You can come up with solutions, but if, you, if it was the wrong problem, I did that. Actually, I could think of three examples this week when I tried to help my wife with baking Thanksgiving stuff, and she finally just kicked me out of the kitchen. Because essentially, what was I doing? You need this. And she's like, stop it. I don't need that. It's not the right problem, right? So I gave the wrong solution, right? If we have the wrong problem, we'll apply the wrong solution. And God says, if you want the solution, we got to get to the problem. So second, the darkness we walk in. Uh, 9.2 nine in Isaiah, which is the beginning of, really, right at the beginning of the passage, what I read earlier, it says that the people walked in darkness. But what was striking about that, when, if you read it and you think about the perspective of the Israelites, it's saying the people walked in darkness. Now, you can imagine, and throughout that it's been talking about their sin and whatnot, you can imagine that the people of Israel are going, wait, 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 we walk in darkness? You're telling God, we're the ones who are invaded by Assyria. We're the ones who are actually victims of them. Don't you see, God, that how can you say that we walk in darkness? They're the dark ones and they're invading us. It's a timeless problem, what Israel falls into, what we often fall into, which is that so often we're so quick to blame shift and say, no, 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 the darkness that's around me, it actually has nothing to do with me. It's actually because of those out there. But what Isaiah says is you have to look in the mirror. In fact, one of the things in the, uh, a place where this really hit me was someone who could have easily like the Assyrians in the 20th century, we had a lot of barbaric regimes that rose up around the world. Germany, Soviet Union, right? Go on, unfortunately. And one man who was in the Soviet Union, he was a dissident, he fought against them, spoke against them, wrote against them, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, right? It's a, it's a mouthful. Um, but he, he was put into the gulags or the labor camps for the Soviet Union. And there he was tortured, starved, and beaten. When he got out, he found that so many people would say, essentially they were saying, no, what's really wrong in the world? The evil has nothing to do with me. The evil is out there. 
And if we could just deal with them and get rid of them, then just utopia would break out, right? And he says, no, 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 no. Here's, and he of all people could have said, yes, exactly. But what he said was, I still have to be willing to look at my own heart. And here's what he said. It's a famous line. He said, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. The line between good and evil doesn't cut between nation states, doesn't be cut in our fences from us and our neighbors. The line between good and evil cuts through every human heart. And he says, who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Who's willing to actually look at the problem and actually address it? In other words, what he's saying is what Isaiah had to say, which was, it's easy to blame everyone else for the darkness, but never take a moment to look in the mirror. It's not to say that you don't look at what is wrong and unjust and name it. But we also have to do, we have to also look in the mirror, the mirror of God's word and see ourselves rightly. Israel had failed to look in the mirror. Isaiah opens in chapter one, summarizing the state of Israel. And he says this, and we read it during the confession time earlier in worship. You'll remember some of it. He says, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? They're coming into, into the temple and they're constantly worshiping and offering sacrifice and they're trampling into the courts. And you go, what, what, who, who's making you, what are you doing? He says, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. In other words, like what we call going to church. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. He makes a promise there. Redemption is possible. And he says, how? If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, then you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The way to summarize this is just that the people of Israel had empty religion. They went through all the acts and went through all the ceremony and all the pomp. They used all the right language. They went to worship. They offered their sacrifices. They outwardly, they looked like they did all the right things, but inwardly their hearts were far from it. And in fact, not only were their hearts far from it, but they actually used the trappings of religion. They used the language of religion. They used those things as a way to actually cover up where they were living selfishly and to excuse themselves. So they weren't just like their heart just wasn't in it. They were actually using it in order to support and reinforce the way they were living. They used religion to justify themselves, to excuse themselves and cover up their selfishness. Now, what I would say is before we scoff at them, we need to look in the mirror ourselves. I think when he says the mouth of the Lord is spoken, I think what the thing is here is God is not mocked. When I say God is not mocked, I mean if I come in here and I do these things and you think well of me and then actually the whole time I'm just mocking God. And this is, I know this is like, again, you're like, wow, first week of Christmas, where are we going? <laughs> um, I thought it was just naughty or nice. I didn't know. Um, we, we really cannot fathom the sweetness of Christ until we realize the bitterness of our sin. And, and one of the things on Christmas is so often we just make it the sentimental thing and what the Old Testament prophets, what Scripture does over and over again is it kind of takes us by the scruff of the neck and it says, look, 
really look and check your heart, check your soul, because so often what happens is we just live with this religious pretense. And so let me ask, I mean, I, I should just ask for a moment, like, do you cover up injustice with religious pretense? Do you use Christian jargon to avoid doing justice? And when it, like, when it says you're a and I know these are hot-button words, right, in categories right now. High, they're politically charged. But what Scripture talks about again and again, that God's people are meant to be a blessing to the nations. God redeems. He starts with Abraham, and he says, when I redeem you, I'm then going, you're going to be a blessing to the nations. And so are there individuals in your life that you, you're actually excusing when you know God is, you feel that tug in your heart where God's calling you to, to serve them, to sacrifice for them, and, and there's some way that you just, you just silence that voice and you just turn around and you go, well, I, I just gave a little bit more to the church or I did something, I don't need to do this. Or I just, I gave a little bit more time and I served and so I don't need to do any of these things. And what happens is, and I, guys, this is something I find over and over again in myself I struggle with, which is what I'll do is I'll use doing this stuff, and it's super dangerous as a pastor, believe me, where I can just go through all the religious motions and do all that in the pomp and circumstance, and then, in my, and then what I tell myself is it's all good. Now, here's what I'll say. The, um, let's see. Well, let me say this first. I just asked those questions, and I would say as well, there's something away, because this manifests in so many different ways. If you're younger as well, like my generation younger, we also do this thing where we avoid actually doing justice by talking a good talk about justice on social media in front of everyone, and then actually we just seethe with hatred for our neighbor. Go on and on about how we love the world, and we can't even love the person who's right around us. There are many ways that this surfaces. But why does God use such strong language? This is, this is strong language. And here's the thing. Religious pretense, hypocrisy, whatever you want to call it, it can be forgiven just like any other sin. But here's why it's dangerous. I, I think here's why, what he's saying, why it's so serious is that living that way with that religious pretense, the problem is, the danger of it is, that will never actually, it'll keep you from seeing the darkness in the first place. You can be forgiven. The darkness, the light can come in and, and heal you from the slavery to the darkness. And, but the thing is, if you don't even see, if you're just going through the motions and, and playing church or whatever you want to call it, what happens is you never even actually see your need. And we wear a cross while living lives that mock the God we claim. God wants his people to be a blessing. God wants us to embody his presence, to embody, to have that shalom, to have that peace, to have that hope of that reality and to embody it in the world. And that's what he's calling them to. And so God says to them, he says to us to repent, to stop masquerading as if we've got it all together. Stop masquerading and using whatever it is, religious dress and garb, to cover up our hearts. And God says, if you don't, what he says here, in fact, is I will make sure if you don't, I'll make sure it's clear that you're not of me. And that's exactly the way that this plays out in the nation of Israel. Throughout Isaiah, we see that the people have these sins individually, and then it starts talking about the people having these sins, and then slowly by chapter 7, it's talking about the king, Ahaz. It's kind of like it's metastasized, and you see the, people, the king standing in for all the people, and what happens is the king, because he doesn't really trust the Lord, the people don't really trust the Lord, they're just using the religious stuff to kind of really do what they want, and what happens is then they because they don't really trust the Lord, they turn to whoever they feel like they can trust when the chaos comes. And what happens is often in our lives when the chaos really comes, we see who we really trust and who we turn to and where we think hope is found. And what they do is they turn to Assyria. And they actually try to make this kind of like political alliance with Syria, and it actually is what ends up leading to them being destroyed and enslaved. One of the what does that have to, I think there's a picture there. 
but saying that when we don't live our lives and we're not really willing to look at the darkness and in fact actually we're just going through the motions what will happen is our heart slowly doesn't actually trust the lord and then what happens is all of a sudden things get unsettled in our life and we begin grabbing onto things that just tell us what we want to hear and we grab onto those things as a replacement for the Lord, and we are so easily controlled and manipulated by these things. And guys, it could be it could be a boy who tells you what you want to hear. It could be a girl who tells you what you want to hear. It could be it could be a company that just gives you and sells you whatever you can want, all your desires. It could be a political leader, and yes, it could be a religious leader. What happens is when our souls, and this is how it often plays out, is when our souls are going through like the religious pretense, our souls aren't really learning to trust the Lord. And in fact, they're learning to grab onto something else. And eventually when things are unsettled, we grab onto those things. And slowly they corrode our souls. And so what happens is to summarize it, in 8.22, he summarizes by saying they will look to the earth to the things of the world. And he says, if you look to the things of the earth, to the things of the world, you will get the whirlwind and the chaos of the earth and the world in your lives if you trust these things. And he says, that's when then he says, the result is behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, thrust into thick darkness, despair. And it's into that despair that Isaiah begins to give them a sign of hope. Third, the sign of hope. So you can imagine kind of what maybe you're doing right now. And also they would be like, Isaiah, what do we do? Right? Like, wow, you really painted a pretty bleak picture there, a pretty dark picture. And so what do we do, Isaiah? And what he does actually towards the end of chapter 8 is he actually has this line in 820 where he's like, to the testimony, right? I love that line, like, to the testimony, like, to the prophecy, to the scripture. And he says, go to it. And actually what Isaiah does at the beginning of chapter 8 is he's so convinced because he gets this prophecy from God, and it's such good news, but it actually comes with kind of like some bad news first, then some good news, right? And he, he knows that this is true, and he's so afraid to tell the people, well, he's not afraid, but he's so convinced they'll kill him when he tells them. And so that he actually goes to a notary and he's like, hey, write this down so that when I give it to the people and then they kill me and then it comes true, I can kind of like from the grave be like, told you, right? And so he has like a notary write down because he's like, they're going to kill me. And you can look at that at the beginning of chapter eight. And then eventually by the end of chapter eight, they're going, what do we do? And he says, to the testimony. So what is this testimony? What is this testimony? Well, this is where it brings us to the prophecy of chapter 9 that we read at the beginning. And it says this, says, but there, starting in verse 1 of chapter 9, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And so he says, hey, you're in darkness. But listen, there is a light that is coming. There is something that's going to eviscerate the darkness, that's going to pierce the darkness. And God is doing this work. And so the people go, How, what, what does it look like? What does it mean that he's going to do this? And so we're going on in verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. So now he's saying, okay, in the midst of this darkness and the nation crumbling, he's saying, actually, there's going to come a day when actually everything's going to be revitalized. Everything's going to be restored and the nation will be healthy. They'll be filled with joy. They'll rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest. And they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden of Assyria and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. He says, the one who now is conquering you, the one who is mighty and squashing you and has you under his boot heel, the Lord will crush him and free you from him. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for with the fire. All of the horrible things that happen, the Lord will banish them and they will be no more. And then we get to verse six. For to us a child is born. To us a son is is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Now, 
pause there. I do have to wonder, like, I imagine Israel, they're being invaded, right? Imagine, like, America's being invaded. And all the guys, like the generals and the president, they're in a bunker underneath the White House somewhere. And they're, like, there, and they're, like, what are we going to do? And he's, like, like a, Isaiah shows up. He's, like, I have a word of prophecy. And he's, like, the Lord is coming. The Lord is going to do a good work. He's going to squash the invading oppressor, right? And they're, like, yes, yes. How is he going to do it? And he's, like, well, okay, stay with me now. Uh, there's going to be a baby, and the baby's going to come, and the baby's going to... And so you can imagine, it's like, maybe does this really inspire that much confidence? Where are they getting this from? The thing is, we have to understand how prophecy worked, like what prophecy did, how prophecy was, was given. And what would often happen is that there'd be a sign like they would give judgment. Prophecy would come with kind of a judgment, like what God has been doing at the beginning. Israel, you're going to be judged for your sins. But then he says, if you will turn to me, Often the judgment then comes with the promise of restoration or reconciliation, a promise of grace, you could say. And it's usually he gives the grace in the form of a sign, a sign. Something will happen that will guarantee that that grace is coming and how it will happen. Now, that sign, when they get to the child part here, has actually already been given earlier in Isaiah. He gave it back in chapter 7, which is actually a famous verse that we all know if we've been around especially have Christmas decorations anywhere. You've seen this or Christmas cards. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, we all know immediately we could jump to the Gospels when this is picked up in, in the birth narratives that Jesus is Emmanuel. And we could stop there or jump there, and I will in a second. But I want to just really quickly, though, dis, kind of disabuse you of a few things or like make some things clear because we have to understand how prophecy Works. That's what kind of prophecy is, but how does it work? Um, prophecy works kind of like when you're going through mountain ranges. Okay, so when you're heading to mountain ranges, uh, when you get to the first, like I remember when I first drove across the country, I was in college, I'd never seen mountains before, and I got past like Kansas City and I looked up and I saw the mountains and I was like, oh, I'm going to be there in an hour, right? Because it's like they look so close. And then you're driving for eight more hours, you're like, when are they coming? Uh, and then you get to the mountain range, and you see the first peaks, and then you get into the mountains, and then all of a sudden now you get to the second peak. And then you drive a little bit further, and you get to a third peak. And the way that prophecy worked in the Old Testament, we often miss this, is it actually worked with an initial kind of judgment or fulfillment of that judgment, and then that's the first peak. Then you would get to a second peak and a third peak, and that's key for understanding what happens here in Isaiah, and key for understanding how this prophecy, what it means for us today and having hope. Because what happens, one, some of you may have heard this, uh, the word for virgin in, he, in, um, in chapter 7, the Hebrew word there is actually a word that more, it's not just the technical term for virgin, but actually for young maiden, or it could also mean virgin. It's kind of like it can mean both words. And what people do is they go, see, it's not actually virgin, it's mis misinterpreted, and, and everyone's got the Bible wrong, and Jesus wasn't born of a virgin, and blah, 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 right? And you go, well, or maybe it's meant to have a double meaning. Because what happens is, in the very next chapter, the beginning of chapter 8, they hit the first peak of the prophecy. So God gave the prophecy that a child would be born. He'd be born of a virgin or a young maiden. And a young maiden, at the beginning of chapter 8, has a baby. And she has a baby. And in fact, what it does is it gives them the first statement of judgment. They hit the first peak in the prophecy. And what the name of the child that's given is, she gives the name, uh, sorry, I lost my place here. It's an amazing name. The spoil speeds, the prey hastens. Can you imagine that being your name, right? The spoil speeds, the, the prey hasten. And what it is in the name of that child, what it's saying is then that Israel is going to be run over by its enemies. Judgment comes, and it's fulfilled in the first child born to the young maiden. And so they cross, pass through that first mountain range, and then they see a previously unseen peak, the next part of the prophecy, and it comes in a person. It comes in the child. Verse 6 and 7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. So what they say, Isaiah says, you're going to go through a time of judgment, but look by faith and look for this child. Look for the one who will come. He will come and he will bring about the restoration of that shalom. He will bring about the restoration of everything that your heart is looking for. You can have hope in him. And so they trust in him. 
And he will bring a rain of light that will cut through the darkness and bring righteousness and justice. And he's known by the names that embody the rain that he will bring. He says he will be a wonderful counselor. Why? Because where Israel's kings were foolish, where they were clever, but they sowed evil. Jesus, this king, will be wise and seek good. Mighty God, he'll be mighty to fulfill verses 3 and 5 of that prophecy. He'll be the one who's able to vanquish their enemies. He will be mighty God. He will be Emmanuel with his people, conquering their oppressors, freeing them from their enemies. And yes, even on a spiritual level. Everlasting Father. Now, you might read that and you go, wait, we're talk- are we talking about Jesus? Isn't he the Son of God? Now he's Everlasting Father. Ah, uh, what do I do with that? Well, this is language that would often be used of a king. It's not saying necessarily anything about him being the father in a Trinitarian sense, but it's saying that he's going to be a king who's going to reign with a heart like a father. In other words, he's going to do his father's will and his reign will come with the perfect justice and holiness and also the perfect heart and grace and love of his father and his reign will be forever. And then lastly, that he'll be a prince of peace. He'll be a prince of peace that he brings that reign of shalom. And he'll sit on the throne and his reign will be that perfect presence that we long for. Now, no earthly king could fulfill this. Like no one in Israel was like, oh, I see the job description. Can I, where do I apply, right? No one would think that this is going to be any kind of a human being could fulfill this. They needed a king who could be both God and man. And this is why this prophecy here and what they were waiting for is what the Gospels pick up in the, when Jesus enters the scene. Listen to this. In Matthew 4, it says, In leaving Nazareth, he, Jesus, went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Do you remember just hearing that in verse 1 of chapter 9 of Isaiah? He's going into this region so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness, in the backwater regions of the world, in the nothingness of the world, where everyone had forgotten, everyone had given up hope, everyone's despairing. Dwelling in darkness, they've seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region, in shadow of death, on them light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus is saying, Everything, this king, I am bringing his reign. And this is why Jesus says, I am the light of the world. All who follow me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the light, and I'm piercing the darkness. I've come to bring that rain. I am the one Isaiah foretold. I am Emmanuel, Matthew 1 says. I am the presence of God with you. The Bible is not a story about how just to get rid of your sin, and that's it. The Bible is about how we are being, or the presence, we can be in the presence of God forever. Not just we get free from our guilt and we go and live our life and God stays over there and we just kind of interact with him on Sundays, but no, we get the presence of God in our lives. And Jesus is bringing that reality. And even more, Jesus brings the justice of God's reign. He takes up the words of Isaiah 61, the end of Isaiah, where this is going to build towards. And he says, this is what my, my reign will look like. This happens in Luke's gospel, right when he begins his ministry. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, and this is like the ultimate mic drop, right? You just read that prophecy from Isaiah. I'm, that, that's the kingdom of, that God has promised, that it will one day come. And then he says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, in me. Jesus is bringing the shalom of God. And if we know him and we're willing to look at the darkness 
within us and willing to fall before him and accept the payment for that darkness, we then can have that life. And the presence of God with his Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us and he gives us his righteousness. He fills us with his righteous Holy Spirit, which causes us to go out into the world to want to join in the work that God is doing of his kingdom and his reign. It's an amazing picture. Jesus fulfilled Isaiah 53. He was stricken, strung up, bearing the iniquity of us all so we might have life. Land the plane here. Here's where this is interesting, because how then you go, wait, 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 pastor, like we started by saying, how, how can I have hope? Because don't you look around, this is great. Jesus is talking about bringing, getting rid of oppression, getting rid of injustice, getting rid of brokenness, getting rid of all these things, but don't you, it's all around us. So that's great, but do these Bible stories have anything to do with how do I have hope now? Did he already fulfill it and that's it? There's one more peak. There's one more peak to the prophecy. And so often we miss this because what, what, is there, is there brokenness in our world? Is there injustice in our world? Yes. There's one more peak. Isaiah's prophecy goes on to say in Isaiah 65, he says, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. And so what he's saying is one day the new heavens and new earth will come and Jesus picks this up in his words in Revelation 22, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Jesus will eviscerate the darkness. He will eviscerate death. He will eviscerate brokenness and he will restore all things and bring his shalom. But that final peak has not been reached and he says, look to me by faith and you can have confidence and trust me because if I did fulfill that second peak and I did come into the world and I established my throne and my reign, then I will come again. You have a sure hope that this will happen in the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of the terror, in the midst of whatever it is, the darkness. He's saying, do you know that you can have confidence that I will come again? This is why we can have hope in the midst of Advent because Jesus came once in the first Advent, Advent on Christmas morning. And because of that, we can have confidence that he is coming again. We can live with a sure hope, not just wishful thinking, not just nice thinking thoughts or sentimental ideas for Christmas, and that's about it. And when the candies and nuts and presents are all gone, then it's kind of like we go back to reality. No, this is the reality that we have. That on Christmas morning, the Prince of Peace came in a lowly manger in a backwater place called Nazareth in the darkest, shadowiest place on earth. And one day he is coming again as mighty God to finish what he started. Death is defeated. The darkness is fading and a new creation is dawning because of Jesus Christ. We can say, after darkness, there is light. And that is why we can have hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your sure word, for the testimony, for the prophecy. Lord, it's your word. It is sure, it is certain that though we walk in darkness and battle the darkness within us, we do so with a confident hope that our lives are ruled by the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, and of the increase of his reign of peace, there will be no end. Set our eyes upon Jesus this Advent season. Sustain us with hope. Help us to just store up the treasure of what it is that Jesus, God, Emmanuel, you are with us. Help us to turn away from our own wisdom to your wisdom. Holy Spirit, grant us eyes of faith to see and know the coming King in Christ's name.